Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this program is coming from around the world this time. Our broadcast partners, we've got Ken in France. We've got you in Israel talking to Dave Dolan on the west coast of the United States. Paul Shar from Wisconsin. I think this is going to be one of those around-the-world programs, and I'm excited that you're in Israel with a group from Wisconsin, a group of homeschool students and their parents on a senior trip in the land of Israel. That's right, Jimmy, and we sure are excited about this trip. Our good friend Randy Melchert is bringing a group from the Academy of Excellence online. It's a, uh, a private school, a Christian school there, and this is their senior trip. Could you imagine going to Israel on your senior trip? But I think it's a great opportunity for these young people, for sure. There's no better classroom or stage to be presenting God's plan for the Jewish people, looking at Israel past, present, and future. You know, this trip is going to change those young people's lives. I always remember when we would take groups over there, people would say, oh, I wish I would come when I was younger. It would have changed my life how I read the scriptures. These young people's lives are going to be changed. Looking forward to hearing more about the trip as we talk on the program today. But we do have our broadcast partners, Ken, Dave Dolan, uh, Paul Scharf will be back with us talking about dispensationalism again. And we're looking forward to hearing the Legacy Series where we're examining God's plan for the ages. But let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with us. He's our guest every week to talk about geopolitics, things that are taking place around the world. You can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Let's start this interview with the Ukraine crisis as we're taking a look at things that are going on. Seems like things are escalating. We're in the fog of war. One week it may look like Russia is making gains, and then one week it seems like their back is up against the wall. Uh, well, that's right, Rick. And again, we still are waiting for this offensive by the Ukrainians, this counteroffensive by the Ukrainians uh, in an effort to drive Russia out of those occupied areas. It has not taken place yet. The Russians are losing a lot of troops, but so are the Ukrainians. It's a bloodbath, a slow bleed on the part of the Ukrainian army, but also the Russians. So both sides have suffered greatly in terms of manpower and losses in this war. You know, we, we talk a lot about the fog of war, Rick, and tactically is where it figures the most. We don't know what's happening in a particular battle area. Uh, we don't know the day-to-day, -day, the back and forth. The Russians claim, for example, that, that they have had tremendous victories against the Ukrainians recently shooting down storm shadow missiles. These are the cruise missiles that the UK has supplied and pushing back what appears to be a cross-border commando raid by a Ukrainian unit. But on the Ukrainian side, they have claimed both of these as victories. So it's really hard to say tactically whether you've got the Russian uh, defense minister Shoigu behaving like Baghdad Bob and essentially denying the obvious attacks by the Ukrainians or whether the Ukrainians themselves are having uh, tremendous victories. That's the tactical fog of war. On the strategic side, though, uh, I think things are much clearer. Russia clearly has a manpower advantage. Russia has a material advantage. But 
they seem to have a leadership deficiency. Their military leaders on the ground are not pushing the war forward decisively. They're getting a lot of criticism back in Moscow because of this. They seem now to be settling down, hunkering in for a long, long war. Well, can we continue to look at this situation? We've talked about President Biden essentially being all in on a Russian defeat and a Ukrainian victory and maybe even going a little bit farther now, trying to get them new warplanes. Uh, he is. He's talked about F-16s, and uh, this would be uh, a significant escalation. You know, what we've, we've seen here, Rick, is, is something like a game of chicken between Biden and Putin. Putin has been warning uh, really since the very beginning that if the United States, if NATO escalates, Russia can escalate as well. He could use uh, tactical nuclear weapons. He has really evoked that possibility many, many times. And yet each time the U.S. has, has notched up the escalation a bit, whether it's providing new tanks or Patriot missiles or now these F-16s, Putin seems to do nothing. He seems not to be retaliating, not to be escalating the war. So, again, it seems to be something of a game of chicken right now. The Americans are emboldened. NATO has, has been emboldened. And we will see more uh, advanced military equipment, not just those F-16s, but uh, Holland, the, the Netherlands is talking about buying uh, Leopard tanks from Switzerland to then transfer them on to Ukraine as well. So a lot of military resupply is going on right now. Well, Ken, we know you're in France right now and you're very familiar with French President Emmanuel Macron. He delivered a speech this week saying how they misjudged the Eastern European situation. Uh, it, it was it's truly astonishing to see Macron eat crow in public. It, it's difficult for him to do. You know, he chomps and chomps at it. And eventually the words come out. He was in Bratislava, Slovakia. And what I find truly amusing about this, Rick, is that the French media did not report that speech. They did not report on Macron eating crow. They reported instead on him the next day in Moldavia, where he was, quote, leading the 50 European and NATO countries as they met with Zelensky. This speech, though, the day before, this speech in Slovakia was interesting because what he said was addressing himself, himself essentially to Poland and Hungary and, and, quote, the new European countries. He said, we should have listened to you more on Russia. We should have listened to you more on Ukraine at the beginning of the crisis. We should have stood up faster. We should not have dragged our feet and given Ukraine military equipment. And he also alluded to uh, one of his predecessors, Jacques Chirac, who in 2003, when the new European countries were supporting the United States and, and Britain in the war in Iraq, he says, you missed a good opportunity to shut up. That's what Chirac said then in 2003. Now Macron is trying to walk that back and say, hey, we missed a good opportunity to listen to you. Well, very interesting. Well, many speeches taking place around the world. And the politics of this so interesting, hard to walk through, hard to navigate, hard to understand where each side is coming from. That's what we have you for, Ken, to help explain to us, give us perspective on what's going on. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky recently in a speech demanding to join NATO and the European Union. And warning that without Ukraine inside NATO, there would just be a creeping uh, Russian occupation 
of Ukraine and of other countries on Russia's border. Uh, the Germans have been very skeptical of Ukraine's demand to join NATO. The German foreign minister said, uh, look, the rules are very clear. Uh, we do not allow countries into NATO that have ongoing border conflicts. And to call the ongoing war with Russia a border conflict really gives a new meaning to the word understatement. Well, it certainly does. We'll continue to keep an eye on the situation there in Europe. But let's move to China. We continually watch China on this program as we understand the growing presence, their growing influence around the world and the potential threat. This week, Xi Jinping tells China's national security chief to prepare for the quote-unquote worst-case scenarios. Uh, Interesting to see that spoken of in public. Obviously, China has been talking about Taiwan, about potential conflict with the West. But I think that what we're seeing here is President Xi is beginning to feel the pressure, uh, not just from the United States, but also the Europeans and and in other parts of the world, in Africa, uh, on China. China is not just getting a free pass. Countries are speaking up, speaking out about what they perceive as a Chinese invasion of their intellectual space, of their culture, of their economy, uh, Chinese espionage, Chinese uh, intellectual property theft, all of that going on. So this is she kind of striking back and say, hey, we are the ones that are actually being threatened. And he wants his national security people, his his foreign intelligence agencies, his domestic intelligence agencies to sharpen up their game. Recently, there have been a number of assaults, if you wish, by the Chinese authorities on Western companies, on espionage charges leveled against foreign technicians and and working people working in foreign companies in China. So we see a kind of increased tension uh, between the Chinese government, the intelligence services and the Western presence in China. At the same time, you have the Chinese military engaging in these incredibly aggressive close calls in the air with U.S. aircraft, U.S. reconnaissance aircraft uh, in international airspace. You have Chinese fifth generation fighters uh, going right across the, uh, you know, right in front of the bow of the aircraft uh, so they'd have to eat the turbulence, very dangerous maneuver. And they've been doing this repeatedly again and again and again, almost every week. Uh, Our military has complained about it to the Chinese. The Chinese just really don't seem to care. As always, we'll continue to keep our eye on China. Finally, Ken, let's go to the Middle East. We're going to talk a little bit more about this with Dave Dolan in the next segment, but I wanted to get your take on it. Leaked documents from Iran show that they are planning a new phase of attacks against U.S. troops in Syria. Well, I think what the Iranians are are saying is an opportunity here. They are are not at all certain that uh, President Biden has staying power. They're not sure how committed the United States is to that small military presence in Syria. And remember, the Iranians have always sought to push the U.S. out of areas that they are interested in occupying, whether it's Lebanon in the 1980s or the Persian Gulf more recently. Uh, They succeeded in, in ultimately driving the United States out of Iraq. So this, I think, is part of a bigger plan on the part of the Iranians. Again, attack the United States where you can, drive them out so they are not able to exert influence in areas where the Iranians want to dominate. Well, Ken, as always, we appreciate you taking your time there in the south of France to be with us. We appreciate your knowledge, your experience. 
Again, for those that would like to, if you go to Ken's website, KenTimmerman.com, you can find out a little bit more about Ken, sign up for the newsletter, and find out more about his latest book, And the Rest is History, Tales of Hostages, Arms Dealers, Dirty Tricks, and Spies. Ken, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. It's always a blessing. That's KenTimmerman.com. Thanks, Ken. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan talking about the Middle East, where Rick is in Jerusalem, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Nigeria's new president, Bolo Tinubu, took office earlier this week. Believers are cautious to see how Tinubu will tackle Islamic extremism. The nation is deeply divided, with Muslim majority in the north and Christian majority in the south. Twelve of Nigeria's 36 states have Sharia law. Greg Kelly with World Mission says blasphemy cases are used as a cudgel on minority Christians in these areas. Pray for believers' witness of the gospel in persecution. And have you ever heard of a socially acceptable addiction? For many, it's the phone. They're constantly checking their email or social media. Others are hooked on coffee. Nicotine makes the list, too. Roughly 50 million people in the U.S. are addicted to a tobacco product. The Lighthouse offers faith-based addiction services, and they just added a smoking cessation program. If you or someone you know needs help to overcome an addiction, connect with The Lighthouse at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries, on with Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update where we talk about the Middle East in general, Israel in particular, and joining us this week to talk about that is Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Blessed to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, we've got a few stories to look at today. Not a big news week. It's relatively calm in Israel right now, and I'm thankful for that as I'm here with a group of people. But we'll start in the north where a Palestinian terror group blames Israel for an overnight airstrike in Lebanon. Yes, Rick, it's the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine General Command Group, which was formed by Ahmed Jabril in 1968 and was heavily involved in terror attacks in the 70s and 80s all over Europe and the world. And uh, they have a base right on the Lebanon-Syria border, about 50 miles north of Israel. And they said that on Wednesday morning, an explosion, large explosion took place. They released some pictures. They didn't say that it definitely was Israeli bombs, but they blamed Israel for it. Israel said they had nothing to do with it. 
They made a strong denial, in fact, of it, and they said that, that it was an arms depot, they believe, that exploded. There was an accident in it, and they're just trying to blame Israel. And the last thing they need is more Palestinian rockets coming from the north. Of course, we had them come out of Lebanon uh, by Hamas-affiliated Palestinian groups. There's several uh, Shiite Palestinian groups in Syria. The Palestinians have oh, tens of thousands of uh, people living in Syria. And, of course, many Syrians have fled into Lebanon and Jordan because of the war there. But uh, that happened, and Israel's hoping there'll be no attempts at retaliation uh, from the Popular Front. But it's a very radical group, and, of course, they have cells inside of Israel and in uh, Judea and Samaria and the Gaza Strip. So there could be some uh, action there. Well, as we look at this situation and what's taking place in Israel's northern border, let's take this chance to talk about Syria. Bashar Assad has been under pressure for quite a while, and many people thought he was on his way out, but he has managed to survive and is now back in the Arab League. This is a very interesting development, and just can you talk about this a little bit for what this means for the dynamics in the Middle East? Well, Rick, he was very much ostracized by most of the other Arab countries uh, during the 12-year war that raged in his country, uh, mainly because of the uh, oppressive uh, actions that are known to take place in his jails. 100,000 people have disappeared in the last 12 years. Of course, there's over a million Syrian refugees that I just mentioned, many of them in Lebanon, many of them in Jordan. And those two countries are trying to push those people back into Syria. And so they would like a resolution of the conflict, a formal resolution, and him being invited back into the Arab League and given a warm welcome, a big embrace by the Saudi leader and others, you know, a sign that he's weathered this storm and he's back in the saddle. Of course, a close ally of Russia and a close ally of Iran. He allows the, both parties to operate in his country quite freely. And in fact, Russia complained earlier this week, Rick, that American jets were coming too close to its bases in northeast Syria. Yeah, there are Russian and American forces right next to each other up there. I don't know if uh, many of our listeners know that, but that's a fact. And there's uh, tensions there, reports that Iran is planning a new offensive against the U.S. forces there as well. So uh, Syria is a mess still, but uh, Assad has clung to power and his family has had it since the 60s. And they're very repressive and that's how they stay in the saddle. Very interesting as you talk about this situation and you talk about Russia and Iran being heavily involved in Syria. Of course, that has current political and future prophetic implications. Uh, but we look at the situation, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm here in Israel right now and I'll be taking a group of people into the Golan Heights in a few days, and the political football that was the Golan Heights and whether or not Israel or Syria should have sovereignty there kind of went by the wayside for a little while with that civil war, but I imagine it's going to come back again, and the brutal tactics, the brutal regime that the Assad family has brought in Syria, they want to export that to Israel as well. That's certainly something that we need to watch going forward, isn't it? Well, it absolutely is. And actually, Iran has taken over that first place spot in Israel as in terms of its uh, active enemies that they worry the most about and prepare for. But of course, Iran is in Syria now, as I just said, their forces are all over the place. 
And they, of course, back uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon very strongly. They back uh, several of the Palestinian groups that are active in Damascus and Syria. And yes, we can expect there'll be more trouble ahead uh, concerning the Golan Heights that uh, went off the table, like you said, a bit during the war and during the Trump administration that actually recognized Israeli sovereignty up there, but that isn't uh, official, and Biden doesn't say that. So you can expect some more fireworks in the future up there. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye on Israel's northern border going forward, but let's talk about just a few other issues, and we'll do these quickly. The first story that comes across our desk, Hungary was rumored to have been moving their embassy to Jerusalem, which, as we know, is the capital of Israel. The United States did that under Donald Trump. Very interesting now. Maybe that's uh, being backtracked by Hungary. Can you tell us what the story is there? Well, it was actually broken by the Israeli foreign minister, Eli Cohen. He said that he'd been uh, in touch with the Hungarian officials, and they told him that they were preparing to move the embassy in the coming weeks, is what he said, uh, Cohen said. Uh, Then their ambassador came out and said, well, we haven't actually made up our mind. We do have a trade office since 2019 in Jerusalem, but we haven't really made a final decision. So it looks like Cohen was crowing a bit early about it. But it is expected, Rick, that this probably will happen. There's one or two other European Union member states that are talking about this as well. And, of course, the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, is a longtime ruler and a close close friend of Bibi Netanyahu. So uh, I would expect we will see something happen along those lines fairly soon. Well, David, we continue to look at other news coming out of the state of Israel, and there is a new significant find of natural gas off the coast in Israel. What do you know about that? Yes, that was announced this week by uh, a huge Israeli conglomerate that's involved in extracting this gas. It's the fourth uh, major field announced in the last Oh, decade or so. This one's called Catlan, which is Hebrew for Orca and Orca. Uh, they say it has 68 billion cubic meters of natural gas in it. And the uh, officials point out that Israel only uses itself 13 billion a year. So most of that will be exported. And I said that it's the fourth one they found. The Leviathan is the biggest by far. And there's two others. So Israel has become a major superpower in energy. Who would have thought that? It was all, you know, Saudi Arabia and and, uh, other Gulf states that had all the action. It was thought and poor Israel was missed. But just off that coast, out on the Mediterranean shelf, they found these four uh, gas fields and already three of them are operating and are exporting supplies all over Europe and other parts of the world. So it's a great blessing for Israel, certainly economically uh, a great blessing since they have to spend the biggest percentage of any country on earth uh, on their defense budget every year. Final question, real quick. There was an interesting story. Some antiquity thieves were nabbed in Israel. Of course, there's antiquities all over Israel, but they were stealing ancient floor tiles used by the destroyers of the Second Temple. I thought this was very interesting. It's a uniquely Israel story. But of course, the destroyers of the Second Temple, the 10th Roman legion, uh, they were fulfilling Bible prophecy in many ways, weren't they? Well, they were, Rick. They had a unique way of stamping their floor tiles that were used in their barracks and in their 
different uh, buildings that they had, and they stamped LXF on the back, which is Latin for um, basically the Roman Legion, the 10th Roman Legion. And of course, as you say, in AD 70, they destroyed the temple after a four-year revolt in Israel, and they were involved in later actions. And whenever these tiles are found anywhere around Jerusalem or in the north or whatever, then archaeologists know that the 10th Legion was there, that that was one of their locations. Well, some Arabs found these tiles somewhere and dug them up, and they had fresh dirt on them, and they were in the trunk of one guy's car found in East Jerusalem. They had recently apparently been dug up, and the archaeological department was very upset over it and said, you know, leave, please leave all these ancient remains in place. We need to look at them and that sort of thing. But this has been going on for decades, and these guys find something and smuggle it out if they can and make some money on it. So greed comes into play there. Yes, a reminder that the temple was there, the Romans were there, all that the Bible says happened, happened and Palestinians say otherwise. Certainly a very interesting story. We thought we'd bring it up because we talk about Bible prophecy being fulfilled in the future. But as we look at archaeology in Israel and what is taking place here, we see that Bible prophecy was fulfilled in the past, and that gives us an assurance that it will be fulfilled in the future. Well, David, thank you so much for all that you do, keeping our listeners informed. Look forward to talking to you again soon. You too, Rick, and next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem, a very significant phrase that the Jews repeat today after the holidays. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, a conversation with Paul Scharf and Dr. George Gunn, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, you're coming from Israel. What are your first observations when you landed this time? I mean, uh, you, it's been a little bit since you've been there, not too long, uh, probably about four or five months. But what were your observations when you landed in, in the land this time? Well, Jimmy, as you know, we've reported on this program so many different things that have been taking place in Israel from the protest uh, with the judicial overhaul and you look at the flare-up in Gaza. Uh, so many things that we heard in the news. But, you know, Jimmy, since I've been here, it's been quiet as a mouse. Not a whole lot going on. I've been walking the streets of Jerusalem and uh, very much like normal, uh, sometimes we have to filter what we see in the news versus what reality is here on the ground. 
Yes. I always tell people, you know, they, they ask the question, aren't you afraid going to Israel? And I say, well, if we can get you through New York City, you'll be just fine when you get to the land of Israel. Well, mm-hmm. I'm excited about these young people. And uh, this is part of their senior trip, uh, homeschoolers uh, from Wisconsin. And they, uh, our good friend, Randy Melchert, who has actually helped us do quite a few of our videos is the united states in bible prophecy and the latest the destiny of america he helped us and gave us support to get those videos done so he's a good friend of the ministry isn't he he certainly is and even more than the support he's actually been helping us to distribute we have some online ways that we can distribute those videos and bringing a whole new group of people in to the teaching. And that's what our whole goal is for our ministry is getting out the Bible teaching and it it helps us to spread the materials. And so we certainly appreciate his relationship with our ministry. And this senior trip is just going to be another great experience. We hope to continue to do this year after year. Yes, and what a great impact. Again, you are mentoring, you're putting into the lives of these young people. They'll never forget it. I still hear from pastors today that were young people that we took back in the 90s. I mean, the 90s, so long ago. (laughs) It wasn't really that long ago, but it seems like forever ago. But uh, those uh, changed the lives of those young people and a lot of those folks, uh, those young people became pastors and and, uh, missionaries around the world. And uh, really, the land of Israel does a great thing not just the land of Israel, but when you're there with God's word and you're teaching and you're reading it, like you said, for the first time in their life, they'll be looking at it in technicolor. I mean, the sights, the sounds, the smells, everything with it. Well, uh, looking forward to talking more about the program this week and next week. Maybe we'll get a few testimonies from a few of the kids that are on the trip next week on the program, and we'll hear how the land of Israel affects their understanding of God's word. Speaking of God's word this week, Paul Scharf is with us again, and we're going to be talking about dispensationalism. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jimmy. Great to be back with you. Yes, Paul. So let's catch our folks up. First of all, give for me, if you will, the website where people can find your articles, uh, things that you have. Thanks, Jimmy. I'm uh, privileged to be a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And in that capacity, I have a, a web page where I have all of my ministry resources on sermonaudio.com at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, that's P-S-C-H-A-R-F. And people can find all of my resources right there, and they can find links to other places where they appear as well. But uh, one thing that I would love to include them in is my weekly e-newsletter, and they can sign up for that free, of course, if they go to sermonaudio.com slash pscharf. Just click on the About tab, mm. and at the very top of the page, it will tell them how they can go and add themselves into receiving my free weekly e-newsletter with all my information. That's really the best way that people can connect with me. Yes, and your association with Friends of Israel, it's a quality organization. Uh, we've had Steve Herzig, we've had Chris Kotolka yes. on the program, yes. and uh, and Paul Scharf. So <laughs> uh, Dr. Elwood McQuaid in the past, and uh, Dr. Oh yeah, we've had, it's great, uh, great relationship. So Let's catch everybody up. If somebody's just listening this weekend, we're opening the discussion about dispensationalism. What is dispensationalism? 
Well, Jimmy, dispensationalism, it's, it may be a kind of a, uh, a di- difficult word to grasp if they've never heard it before, but the concept is very simple. We want to look at the whole Bible and understand every passage. Of course, we'll never do this perfectly on this earth in our sinful bodies mm. and sinful minds, but if, to every extent possible, we want to understand what did the original writer mean and what would his original audience have understood him to say and what is the literal meaning within the context, recognizing that there are all different kinds of figures of speech and manners of communication used in the writing of Scripture, but what is the literal meaning? What does it actually say uh, in particular to those who first received it? What would they have understood That's literal interpretation, Jimmy. And if we interpret the whole Bible literally, that's really the key to getting toward dispensational theology, because what we're going to find is, in particular, God has distinct programs for the nation of Israel and for the church. And those two remain distinct. And, of course, the church never replaces Israel, but close to your heart, Jimmy, is the fact that God still has a future for Israel. Mm. And he will fulfill every promise he's ever given to his chosen people, every prophecy he's ever made to them, and we believe that will be in the prophetic future. So there are these two programs, Israel and the Church, each have their own place in God's purpose that he's unfolding here in the world. That's right. And you know what? It's a proper hermeneutics for studying Scripture and understanding uh, to understand Bible prophecy In its entirety, you have to understand that the Jewish people still have a plan in God's program, and he's not finished with them yet. So I love that. That was a very clear understanding of what dispensationalism is. So we're going to carry on the conversation this week as to why dispensationalism is declining in the church. So uh, once again... You know, I I hear the objections. I wonder how if they're valid, you know, because there are certain groups of denominations that say that dispensationalism, number one, is a recent understanding of Scripture, uh, that it doesn't fit the narrative as they teach God's Word, as they were taught God's Word. So, you know how do we how do we answer this and how do we reconcile that within ourselves that dispensationalism is still very and of course I'm asking a rhetorical question but because uh, I understand it but how would you help others to understand that dispensationalism is, is very important when studying scripture? Well, those are good questions, Jimmy, and obviously would take more time than we have here to delve into <laughs> yeah. uh, the depths of the his, the historical background. But we're not so much interested to say what has always been taught at any one moment in church history, mm-hmm. although that's very important. Yes. We want to know what the scriptures meant when they were written. How, what did the author mean? What did the original recipients understand? And I, and I do believe, by the way, there's very good work being done, incredible work being done, to show that some of the things that we as dispensationalists hold were in fact believed, mm-hmm. you know, at various points and very early on in the history of the church. And again, we can't prove all of that here in this time that we have, but the real issue is what does the Bible mean? And, you know, it can't mean something that the first readers would never have understood it to mean. Right. Uh, those that received the prophecies of 
Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah could never have fathomed that as they were reading of promises to Israel, for instance, those promises would be fulfilled in a church that would be including both Jewish and Gentile people that would have nothing to do with the people of Israel. So it's always going back to the text. And, you know, I believe we have some very good historical reason to do that if we want to delve into church history, which is a passion of mine. Mm. Um, and we're, I think, really as dispensationalists, we're fulfilling, we're attempting to fulfill the heart cry of the of the Reformation, to go back to the original source and back to the text and to interpret it literally and to stand on Scripture alone. Wow. Was dispensationalism in the Old Testament? Well, certainly, Jimmy, there, are, there are, dispensationalism uh, includes the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. We want to take the whole Bible literally. The, the Old Testament is the basis of course, it's the foundation for what's to come in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. We don't read the New Testament back into the Old, but we read the Old as the fundamental foundation for understanding the New. And as we read the words of the prophets and others in the Old Testament who wrote by divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we understand they're talking about uh, the times in which they lived and ministered, and also prophesying of future things, some of which, many of which, are still future to us, of course, as you believe, and I believe, Jimmy. And and so we t- as we take those literally, yes, we see a development of what we would call dispensational thinking that I think grows right out of the Old Testament. Yes. You know, and, and uh, prophecy, Bible prophecy, uses apocalyptic literature. Uh, apocalyptic symbols. What are some examples you can give us from the Old Testament that help us to see this? And I, I think Daniel is a book that's filled with apocalyptic right. uh, symbols and signs. Well, there's no question, Jimmy. The apocalypse, the book of Revelation, is the revealing of Jesus Christ. But sometimes that word apocalyptic is is thrown around kind of loosely, and mm-hmm. it can be used to put certain even Bible books in a category that makes them uh, almost uh, is attempting to render them uh, sort of uh, irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And of course, we don't believe that anything in God's holy word is irrelevant or wasted or given without purpose. And, you know, the idea of dispensationalism, literal interpretation, we want to go into the context and interpret literally. Now, when Daniel, for instance, in Daniel chapter 7, is talking about four great beasts, a lion and a bear and a leopard, and then an indescribably horrible, awful beast. Now, is he talking about four wild animals coming to rule the world at various times? Well, of course not. But on the other hand, is he talking about something that's just absolutely unknowable, that's just symbolic and spiritual and to be allegorized into almost uh, meaninglessness? Obviously not as well. These symbols symbolize something. These, these signs signify something. They point towards something. In fact, in the book of Daniel, sometimes we have specifically literal interpretations, such as in Daniel chapter 8, uh, right after chapter 7, we're in a similar context, 
and Daniel receives a message that he's hearing about the kings of Media and Persia and the kingdom of Greece. Mm -hmm. So these symbols symbolize something. We could say the same thing in the book of Revelation. You know, we could look at some of those symbols and we could say, wow, these are uh, incredible. What could they possibly mean? Well, they do mean something specific in context, and we we understand them in their context, and so we're not we're not uh, lost in just allegorizing them away into nothing. We do re- recognize these are figures of speech, and they have to be interpreted in context. The amazing thing about Daniel the prophet, Jimmy, one thing that of his life, one of many that are so challenging to me, we read chapter 7, and look at the language that describes Daniel and his approach to these things. Uh, Verse 4, I watched. Verse 6, I looked. Verse 7, I saw. Mm -hmm. Verse 8, I was considering. Verse 9, I watched. Verse 11, I watched. Verse 11 again, I watched. Mm -hmm. Verse 13, I was watching. And then verse 15 says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me, and I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him about the truth of all this. And at the end of the chapter, his thoughts greatly troubled him, and his countenance changed. Mm. He was almost uh, you know, physically sick, trying to wrap his mind around what he was seeing and hearing, and to understand and to know the meaning of these things. Now, if that doesn't defy the idea of allegorizing away details into nothingness, uh, Daniel is such an incredible inspiration for us in our desire to know more and to understand the literal truth of prophetic scripture. Yes, nothing ever in the scripture is negative said about Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 10, it was said, because he humbled his heart, just as all those phrases you gave, because he humbled himself, God gave him an understanding of the things that he read. And that's the best way as we look at these ideas and uh, study line by line. I like what you said last week, which uh, you, you attribute that to Dr. Whitcomb. Line by line, precept upon precept. I love that. Right. And that's what we should do every day. And I appreciate right. the thought. Now, and again, you know, I think we're going to have more conversations about this because unless you get this right, it's really hard to study scripture literally and interpret it literally and have an understanding. When you do see this, Paul, when you look at what's going to take place in the future, Bible prophecy is used to motivate us to understand the times in which we're living and the urgency of the hour because of the devastation of the judgment that's going to come upon the earth for the rejection of Jesus Christ as the king. Right. Yeah, there are so many reasons that Bible prophecy is so important for us to know and understand. And and I would also submit, Jimmy, that as we live in the day of the signs of the times, as Mm. Jesus described it in Matthew 16, uh, as we look ahead to the details of the prophetic future, just as we can learn by looking back historically mm-hmm. at the sections of the Bible that describe the heroes of the faith in the past, we can look ahead to the prophetic sections and learn from what is ahead that hasn't happened yet. And we know those events, their shadows fall back in our time, and we can really have greater understanding of the times in which we live and we can really learn based on 
what's coming ahead in Bible prophecy, the significance of the times in which God has placed us. He's, he's placed us here for such a time as this. He wants us to understand these times to be effective, serving him in perhaps the short time that we have, and Bible prophecy can really give us a template for understanding these last days in which we live. Yes, sir. Well, Paul Scharf of uh, Friends of Israel Ministry, Gospel Ministry. Paul, thank you for joining with us this week. We'll have you back again to continue this conversation. We need to talk about the times of the Gentiles, what that phrase means. And we'll talk, mm. we'll talk about that in the future. Thank you, Jimmy. It's always wonderful to be with you. God bless you and your ministry and praise the Lord for this time we've had. Well, you know, we've been getting questions uh, to our website, and we're going to encourage folks to send questions, and we're going to go to our broadcast partners to ask them. And so I've invited back this week Dr. George Gunn. Welcome back, Dr. Gunn. Thanks, Jimmy. Good to be back. Yes, he's a uh, professor of theology, uh, head of the, I, I think, the department at uh, Shasta Bible college and we're right. glad to have you back here with us so we have a question that came in and i thought man this is right up your alley so let me read the question the mosaic gospel of grace must be preached to the world before the great tribulation matthew twenty four fourteen. this has not been done jesus is our example he kept the mosaic feast of leviticus 23 god does not do away with these feasts that's matthew chapter 5 17 and 18 why are you dishonoring God? Expect Israel to conquer Syria soon and prevent nukes from being brought to the borders. Time is short. Repent and obey the gospel and uh, in Jesus' name. So, well, uh, the question, I think, is why are you dishonoring God? So, Dr. Gunn, I've sent you the question. Yeah. What's your take on this? Well, thanks, Jimmy. That's such an interesting question. It's actually one that comes up often. People uh, read that uh, Matthew twenty four fourteen, uh, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Now, this this questioner has a little different twist on that because he's coming from it uh, from the perspective of honoring the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, and the Jewish feasts, mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. More frequently, I've, I've heard this um, utilized by missions organizations as a motivation to Christians to preach the gospel to everywhere in the world. Right. You've got to do that before the Lord returns. <laughs> but, but the thing is, here, there is, a, there is a distinction that needs to be drawn between the, word, the way the word gospel is using here and the way the word gospel is used elsewhere. I think it's important for us to recognize that the word gospel, as Christians, we tend to think of that in a technical sense of the gospel, the message of salvation that gets preached, that involves the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to a first-century Greek speaker, and of course the, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, we know that, to a New Testament first-century Greek speaker, the word gospel, which was in Greek evangelion, just meant good news. Mm. It could be the good news of any kind. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine just went to the doctor, uh, for example, mm. and the doctor told him, well, I have some bad news for you. You have a mass growing in your chest. Well, of course, he was alarmed by that. But the doctor said, but I also have good news. It appears to be benign. Uh, and at your age, he's in his 80s, uh, it probably won't cause you any problem before something else 
um, brings about your death. So there was good news. Mm. A first century Greek speaker would have used the same word that we translate gospel for that kind of good news. So there, you have to understand the word in context. So when we come to Matthew 24, what was Jesus talking about when he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the nations? This was a gospel. It was a good news about the kingdom. Mm. So, uh, you know, the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom is a major theme in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew starts out uh, very early with uh, John the Baptist preaching to Israel, saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the good news. Israel had been waiting for thousands of years for the kingdom. God had promised it long, long ago, and now John was saying it's at hand. Jesus came along and he said, um, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm -hmm. He sent his apostles out to the tribes of Israel, and he told them to preach, saying, repent, because the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the gospel of the kingdom. When we look at at the big picture of the gospel of Matthew, what we find is in the first 12 chapters, this is the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it was an official offer of the kingdom to mm-hmm. Israel, so they were being called to repent. Chapter 12, everything comes to a big head, because Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders up in Galilee, and they say, well, uh, he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, and Jesus accuses them of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is another kind of controversial topic. Maybe mm. we can talk about that someday. But but the thing is, that um, that big encounter led to Jesus officially withdrawing the offer of the kingdom for that time period. And he went on in the next chapter, the 13th chapter, to present these parables about the kingdom. Mm-hmm. The main message being that the kingdom of heaven now is going to be withdrawn for a period of time. It will be reoffered at the second coming. So we are now in this period of postponement, kingdom postponement. So in the tribulation period, which is the subject matter now, when we come back to Matthew 24, we are looking at that final time just before the second coming, the tribulation period. Mm. That's when this gospel of the kingdom will be offered. Again, good news, Israel, the kingdom of heaven is once again at hand. So what he says in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, he's talking about not events that must take place before the tribulation period, like our questioner thought, but it's talking about events that will take place during the tribulation period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the thing is, God you know, has given to the Church today a great commission. We are supposed to bring the gospel of the, the gospel of grace, uh, the death, the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who believe in him will be saved. That's, that's the gospel message mm-hmm. we have, and we are supposed to bring it to the world, but the truth is that it's the Jews who are going to finish that task during the tribulation period. It won't be the message won't be identical to what we preach today because we we can't say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. We don't know that. Uh, the thing that's at hand for the church is the rapture of the church. 
Following that, there'll be the tribulation period, a reoffer of the kingdom, and the signs that will be performed during the tribulation period, the sun turning black, the moon turning red blood, mm-hmm. um, and, and the, these uh, judgments that are coming from God. These are all signs pointing to the fact that just as in the first coming of Jesus, at the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom is once again at hand. And that's good news. Now, I think in the tribulation period, that message will also include a message about the cross, the resurrection, of course, but it will be a a good news that the kingdom is once again here. So the the urgent need to repent is being uh, given over again. Mm. So I think that's what we're looking at here. I think, and I I love the way you answered it. Uh, and it's, it, I think, you know, it's an honest question and just a misinterpretation. There's a technical um, uh, application. Uh, there's a technical interpretation for Matthew chapter 24 and a spiritual application. I yes. think technically it was to the Jewish people, uh, the three strands of the human family that we've talked about, Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. Once the church comes about, we can spiritually apply some of these parables that you talked about, about that kingdom. That kingdom, Absolutely. of course, is the future millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ will rule and reign on the earth, correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep, that's right. Yep. So, well, thank you so much. I think I hope this is helpful. And uh, I, I, I think uh, I, I really appreciate the question. I, you know, he was uh, he wasn't ugly. I see sometimes, Doctor Gunn. I know that you have faced some people. Uh, this becomes something that is ugly. I mean, he did ask, "Why are you dishonoring God?" But we don't think that we're dishonoring God. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We we're offering the gospel. We're proclaiming the gospel. And that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he offers eternal life to all who will believe in him. And uh, that's the message we have for today. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Gunn, thank you so much. Here's a question from someone. We encourage folks to send in your questions, and uh, we'll find one of our broadcast partners. Uh, and, man, I love the way you, you answered it, Dr. Gunn. We're all on the same page together, and I really do appreciate that. Thank you thank so you. much. Okay, God bless. Lord bless you. What a great half hour of Bible teaching, really, of good teaching by both Paul Scharf and Dr. George Gunn. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung with the Legacy Series, teaching on God's plan through the ages, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And uh, Rick, this week, coming from Israel, we do have other trips this year coming up. And I encourage people, if you want to go to Israel, we would love for them to come with us, correct? We certainly would, Jimmy. And in fact, you know, we've been taking trips to Israel for so many years. Our whole family has, of course, starting with uh, our dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and then uh, we've joined in, and we have a similar program. We've learned through all these years, and we always like to say we show you Israel like a rose. We let it unfold before you as we look at each uh, thing in successive order, and everything builds upon it, but it's just a great place to study Scripture. If you go to our website at prophecytoday.com, we'll keep you updated, and we'll put updates on there letting you know when our trips are going to go. You could call our office at 423 423- 
800-825-6247 if you'd like to go. I encourage you to go to our website, prophecytoday.com. Take a look at all of that and, uh, and join us on one of our trips to Israel coming up this next year. Well, Rick, today on our Legacy Series, we're going to continue our study of God's plan through the ages. This time we'll be looking at the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, as was the case last week. We focused on the first 12 chapters of Genesis, a 2,000-year period of time from Adam to Abraham. This week, we look at the record of the fall of man, the flood, the human family, and where nations of the world actually came from. There is a very definite connection between the biblical accounts of creation, the flood, and Bible prophecy. And we're going to take a look at that this week, which will be very evident in our study as we begin again today with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. The place of prominence was given to Lucifer. He was above all of creation, looking over all of it. And then all of a sudden, a couple of days later, in fact, Lucifer was created on the first day of creation. On the sixth day of creation, he brings man into existence, lower than him in creation, and he makes him the king or the ruler, or giving him dominion over all creation. This ticks off Lucifer, so he puts in place a subtle strategy. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent, that's Lucifer in the form of a snake, was more subtle, subtle strategy puts in place, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What does he do? He asks a simple little question, pricking the conscience of Eve. She knows exactly what the Lord said. Look at the next thing he does, verse 2. And the woman said unto the serpent, And we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it. Now that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. But wait a minute. The Lord said, Ye shall not eat of it. But look what Eve says. Neither shall ye touch it. That's not in the Scriptures. That has nothing to do with what God said to Eve. And so because of that piercing little question that Lucifer, Satan, used in his subtle strategy, Eve now starts getting all confused. <laughs> Look here at verse 4. And the serpent said unto her, Woman, ye shall not surely die if you eat of that tree. What are you talking about? Again, the subtle strategy. Chapter 3. The fall of man. Chapter 4. It's the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, twin brothers probably, if not very close in their births, they come into existence. The first two sons we have recorded here in the Bible of Adam and Eve. You know the story. Both of them bring a sacrifice. Cain brings his sacrifice from his garden, from all the fruit that he had. Abel brings his sacrifice from his flock, and he sacrifices an animal, sheds blood. This is setting the stage for every bit of salvation theology to come into existence. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And the Lord looks favorably upon Abel's sacrifice and is a bit discouraged about what Cain brings. This irritates Cain. He has... A, 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 I don't know, a fit of some type, ultimately ended up killing his brother. 
Then another son is born. Look here at the last part of verse, uh, of chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said, she hath appointed me another seed. Now in chapter 3, the Lord, of course, told Eve that she would have a son who would ultimately be the Messiah, chapter 3 and verse 15. And she thought maybe Seth was going to be the one. But notice what verse 26 says. And to Seth, to him also there was a son born. He called his name Enos. Then began men, notice this, then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. And so reaching out to the world was a possibility after Seth came on the scene. In the times of Seth, men started calling upon the name of the Lord. And so that's chapter 4. Chapter 5 of the book of Genesis is a genealogy. Please do not skip over genealogies. Genealogies are key to your understanding of what God is wanting to say to us. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The genealogies as well. We see a genealogy here in chapter 5 from Adam to Noah. The first one mentioned is Adam. The last one mentioned is Noah. When I get to chapter 6 and tell you the reason for the flood, you'll understand why this was a key component and why God selected Noah and his three sons and their four wives to be the only survivors of a worldwide flood. And so as you read through this genealogy, by the way, this gives us the time period from creation until the flood, 1,500 years. You can add up the numbers as well as I can. No gaps in this genealogy. Absolutely no gaps. It's 1,500 years, basically, almost on target from the time of creation all the way to the time of the flood. Now, notice what we read here about uh, a man named Enoch, verse 21. And Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years and begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This is in a genealogy. The first time in history a man appeared on the earth, but then he disappeared from the earth, and he walked into the heavenlies alive. He has to come back. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. This is a key in our understanding of Bible prophecy. What's history? Having a systematic interpretation of the past. Having a unified principle to help us put the past with the present. Chapter 6, 7, and 8 is Noah and the flood. The reason for the flood is found in chapter 6. Verse 1, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, uh, the daughters were born unto them, and the sons of God. Now that sons of God phrase is used six times in Scripture. It's used over in Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, and Job chapter 38. In Job chapter 38, it's talking about those angels. The text talks about in Job chapter 38, angels were there when God created the earth and they shouted for joy, and it's referred to as sons of God in that passage. Sons of God here in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis are angels. They're going to have sexual relationship with human women. They're going to develop the Nephilim. These are going to be giants upon the world, the land. 
One of the reasons that God found Noah perfect, look what it says here in verse 9 of chapter 6. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. That doesn't mean he was without sin. All men have been born in sin. He was perfect without an angelic, evil angelic blood strain in his body. How do I know it? I read the genealogies from Adam to Noah. There's no evil angels listed in the genealogies. This is absolutely God's word. By understanding a systematic interpretation of history, I can understand what happened. And so God is going to wipe out humankind. Additional, subtle strategy for Satan. When he could not confuse enough to accomplish his ultimate goal, Adam and Eve, he then decided to contaminate the human race. The promise of the Messiah was given, Genesis 3:15. What is he going to do? He's going to contaminate the human race so they can't have a pure Messiah that comes forth. Well, chapter 6 is the reason for the flood. Chapter 7 is the retribution of the flood. What happens in chapter 8, the renewal after the flood. These animals and Noah and his three sons and their four wives were in, they were in the ark, and if you study the numbers in chapters 7 and 8, you'll understand they were in the ark 377 days. A year and 12 days they were there, and then ultimately the ground dried out, and God gave in chapter 9 a command to Noah. That's chapter 9, Noah after the flood, chapter 9 and verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, repeople the earth. By the way, in chapter 9 and verse 6, he establishes human government. And this is key because the Lord is going to use human government throughout all of history to accomplish his ultimate goal. It says in chapter 17, verse 17 of the book of Revelation, and God put in the minds of these men, political world leaders, evil political world leaders, because they're alive in the tribulation period, to do what he wanted to have done. In chapter 17, verse 17, it's the destruction of the false church. And then to move into not ecclesiastical Babylon, but economic Babylon in chapter 18. But he establishes human government, verse 6 of chapter 9. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Because God created man in his image, you murder somebody, and you do that, you have to pay the responsibility that comes from that because human government has been set up. The ultimate purpose of human government is to protect life, and that is accomplished with capital punishment. I don't have to debate capital punishment as a political concept. I simply read the Word of God, and what God's Word says is what should be happening. There's no debate. You don't have to argue with me about it. Chapter 10. Chapter 10 is another genealogy. But it is indeed, again, the record of obedience by Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah and their four wives. They are going to move out and do what the Lord said. He said in chapter 9 and verse 1, Be fruitful, multiply, repeople the earth. Chapter 10. Look what it says here in chapter 10. It's talking about Jephthah and Ham and Shem, the sons of Jephthah, and he lists the sons. Now notice verse 5. And by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided into their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Nations come into existence here in chapter 10, verse 5. Jephthah moves out. He's going to teach his family. He is raising now a new language. There was all one language in the world in chapter 11. 
That's how Nimrod came to power and established a great city and established a false religiosity. Chapter 11, verse 4. When the Lord came down and confused the languages, these people had to learn new languages. Jephthah would raise a family, teach his family the new language, and move to a location someplace in the world because God had said, be fruitful and repeople the earth, and he establishes a nation. Where do you think nations come from? Notice he said his, his sons. Let me show you who his sons are. Go back to verse 2. Gomer and Magog, skip a couple, Tubal and Meshach. Go over the last one in verse 3. Tagarma. Well, those are prophetic names found in Ezekiel 38. But who are they? Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma, Magog. Well, Jephthah took his family up into Magog, which is his son Magog's location there above the Caspian and Black Sea to a place called Russia. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Tagarma. Look at any biblical historic map. And you'll see in the times of Asia Minor, the times of the missionary journeys, that there was one country that was divided into four parts, Meshach, Tubal, Gober, Tagarma. That's modern-day Turkey. And so you start to see how nations come into existence. The record of how modern-day nations came into existence some 4,500 years ago after the flood, as described in Genesis chapter 10, is a key component in Bible prophecy. More on that in our studies ahead in this series, God's Plan Through the Ages. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. If you'd like to purchase this series, you can go to our website at prophecytoday.com. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Kramer with Mission Network News. Turkey prepares for yet another five-year term under the newly re-elected President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He secured his win on Sunday after a first-of-its-kind runoff vote. Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA says doesn't change much for believers, but at the same time, Turkey's many nationwide challenges are presenting opportunities. Pray believers will be courageous and use these opportunities to share Christ. And church-planting Bible translators are making progress in Chad. Unfolding Word works with church planting networks to reach people groups who have no access to the gospel. A believer will call Arnie says Open Bible Stories workshop method is very well received. Community testing can be a dangerous task, but it's also full of gospel opportunities. So ask God to protect believers as they bring Open Bible Stories to unreached people groups. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org and hurry because a matching grant ends tomorrow. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. 
be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, you're in Israel. Ken Timmerman's in France. He's got a pulse on really what's happening on the European continent. And uh, I always like asking him questions about the president of France, Macron. David Dolan speaking about what's going on in Israel. You have a firsthand uh, knowledge and being in the land today, of course, Paul Scharf and the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. But uh, highlights on the program today. Well, there's several, Jimmy, and I base them off of what we're doing here in the land of Israel. There was some very interesting stories we looked at. Uh, well, one the antiquity stories. I thought that was very interesting because it's something that we talk about here. The antiquity thieves stealing the tiles with the engraving of the 10th Roman legion in them. Now, what's important about that? For one, we talk about archaeology and how important it is. And Israel is one of the world's leaders in archaeology. But the other thing is the presence of the 10th Roman legion. Many prophecies were fulfilled during that time that they were here, weren't they? They sure were. That uh, The prophecy that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 24, when he said, uh, when the disciples came off of the Temple Mount and said, Jesus, look at that beautiful building. And Jesus gave the prophecy that not one stone would be left upon another. That prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD by exactly what you're talking about, the Roman 10th Legion. You know, Rick, it's interesting a narrative of some people is that the Jews never had a temple in Jerusalem. There was no presence on that Mount Moriah there, that uh, place that Herod built the plateau around where Herod added to a temple that Zerubbabel built when it, when the Jews came back from Babylon. So when you try to wipe out history, it's almost now people are stealing history, which confirms that the Jews did have a presence, that the Romans were there, that the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple and the great revolt that took place in the city of Jerusalem. When we take people there, this is a place where they can tangibly see and feel that God is who he says he is, that he has a plan, that history past and history present Plus, that means that there will be a history future. Certainly does, Jimmy. And just going back to what you were saying there about uh, people trying to wipe out history, and we talked about that last week with uh, the Palestinian Authority president trying to say that there was never a Jewish presence in the land. Well, we know without a shadow of a doubt, not only do we know from the archaeological remains, but we know with the scripture account of what took place in this land. Also, Jimmy, tomorrow I'll be heading up into the Golan Heights, and we had Dave Dolan on. He talked a little bit about the Golan Heights and the controversy that was surrounding the Golan Heights, especially before the Syrian Civil War. Now, during the Syrian Civil War, it's been uh, put uh, it was put aside a little bit, but as we're going forward, that's going to be a controversy. But the Golan Heights is a piece of land that was given to the Jewish people, and it played a part in their War of Independence. It played a part in 1967, and it's going to play a part in the future too, as is Syria. 
Yes, uh, there have been major battles that took place up on the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights is a very important piece of land. It's 400 square miles, and the Golan Heights is one of those mountain ranges in Israel that you always read about, Mount Hermon. The Golan Heights are the heights of Bashan. You've got the mountains of Gilead. You've got the mountains of Moab and then Edom. So these are mountain ranges. And you're so right, Rick. The Golan Heights are so very important. First of all, it's the land that God has promised to the Jewish people forever. It's included in those borders. But it is very important today strategically because it keeps Syria back. Because on the Syrian front, Syria is ramping up. It's becoming a proxy of Iran. We see that they've been brought back into the Arab League. So now there's this League of Nations, the Arab League, that uh, really uh, a lot of them have one thing in mind, and that is to wipe Israel off the face of the map. So many of the things that we talk about on this program, talking with Ken Timmerman today, uh, we look at uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. They're advancing in the world. China The uh, Revelation 18 says the king's coming out of the east. So many things that we talk about on this program that we say are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to happen in the future, they happen during the tribulation period. And of course, that culminates with the Battle of Armageddon. And so we're going to talk about that, remind our young people, and, and hopefully give them a focus, which is what we want to do on this program as well, is give our listeners, help them to focus in on Bible prophecy so that they can then realize the sense of urgency that each one of us have to get out the gospel. It's the Valley of the Mountains, Rick. That's such a great area for a teaching, not only because because what scripture says about it, and it will become Armageddon, Har Megiddo. Har in Hebrew is mountain. Megiddo is that location uh, where Armageddon will take place. And uh, the future when all the nations of the world, it's a great sobering spot to teach that it's important for us to do what God has asked us to do in this world. As a believer, we are to tell others. First of all, we give glory and honor to him and all that we do. Second of all, it's to to tell others about God's plan of salvation for mankind. And if people don't accept Christ and should they live, they're going to be most folks around the world at that time. Antichrist will draw the armies of the world. Probably over a million soldiers will be drawn to that battle. So many people, it says that the blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle in Revelation chapter 14. I always like how we draw the connection, Rick, and how we take Bible, we take God's word literally as we understand Bible prophecy, and it will be literally fulfilled. And what a great spot to do that. And what a great place to challenge people to be about giving God's word to others. You know, God could have used the stars in the heavens, Rick, to spell out, you must be born again. But he didn't. He chose us to carry forth that message. And that's what we hope, Rick, as we do this program, that we help people to understand the urgency of the hour, to study God's word, to understand that God does have a plan, that it will come to fruition. And we're waiting for that next event to take place, which is the rapture of the church. Rick, I encourage you. I'm so happy for you. Be diligent as you teach these young people about God's plan for the ages. 
Excited to be here, Jimmy, and excited to be able to do that. Folks, after looking and listening to our broadcast partners today on what's going on geopolitically and in the land of Israel, we can't help say that the rapture cannot be far away. Let's keep looking up. Until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.